last number of months as we have discerned and talked and had many conversations about what it means to worship together as a family. And as we have a traditional service in our main auditorium and a contemporary service in the West Court, may you be glorified. May each of us be able to worship in our worship language and may each generation be equipped to reach their generation for Jesus. As we talk about the idea of conflict, may this be an encouragement in a challenging conversation. May my words fall down, O God, so that your words would be lifted up, that you would give each of us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts and hands to respond as to what you are calling us to do this day. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. This week, 501 years ago, began what is arguably the greatest conflict the church has ever seen. A young man, only 33 years of age, was not impressed by the abuse of power wielded by the church, and he wanted to put a stop to it. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther posted his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Church and began what is now known as the Protestant Reformation. This was no small poster with a clever title. When translated to English, the document is just shy of 3,000 words the equivalent of a 20-minute message. Acknowledging the risk of oversimplicity, here are three main points that Luther was trying to make. And it would seem, oh, you know what, Gerald? My clicker's not working, so I'm going to hand it over to you. Selling indulgences to finance the building of St. Peter's Basilica is wrong. The Pope has no power over purgatory, and buying indulgences gives people a false sense of security and endangers their salvation. Those are a lot of churchy words, so allow me to simplify and give some context. In 1515, the Pope, along with another high-ranking church leader, wanted to make extensive renovations to St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. But instead, they realized they didn't have enough money. So they needed to have a fundraising campaign to see their dream come to fruition. So they came up with this idea of indulgences which meant rather than telling people about the free grace offered through the person of Jesus, the church decided we'll sell the grace to the people. We'll allow them to buy their way out of purgatory, buy their way out of hell, and that way we'll be able to raise enough money to create this beautiful building. This message is in stark contrast to grace alone through faith alone. Luther also wanted to make it clear that neither the Pope nor the church had any control of what was taking place after death. So not only is this a horrible abuse of power by the church, it could ruin the individual people as well. If people thought they could buy their way into heaven, they might lose faith in God or believe they can act any way they want because their salvation has been purchased. As the Bible was only available at that time in Latin, the common person had no idea what the scriptures actually said and had to trust their local priest. And in this way, the poor people were wondering, how do we get into heaven if we don't have money to pay for these indulgences? Luther had had enough, and he wanted to put an end to it. Now, the story could likely be told as though Luther grabbed this four-inch railway spike and pounded it into the door at uh, Wittenberg Church, challenging anyone to stand against him. The reality is nowhere near as exciting. The church door was the bulletin board of its day. Luther probably handed his 95 theses to the janitor of the church and said, can you please post this up on the door? inviting people to come to an area where everyone could to have a debate and a conversation about what it meant. He had no idea or intention that he would ultimately divide the church between Catholics and Protestants. Conflict is not a swear word. 
I don't think our church has a conflict issue. I think our culture just needs to learn how to respond to conflict well. And perhaps the defining moment in deciding to preach this standalone message was what I read on Facebook just a week ago. Here's what it said. Being taught to avoid talking about politics and religion has led to a lack of understanding of politics and religion. What we should have been taught was how to have a civil conversation about a difficult topic. Is this working now? Gerald, it's not working. I apologize. I'd like to spend the next half hour or so talking about what it means to engage in biblical conflict. We're going to start with the big idea of a biblical view of conflict. I've adapted and adopted some of these ideas from Jim Ipperin's book, Making Peace. It doesn't take long for us to get to our first taste of conflict in the Bible. It actually happens in Genesis chapter 3. Gerald, how are we doing? There we go. Biblical view of conflict, starting in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? After some discussion back and forth, Eve agrees with the serpent that death seems like a rather harsh penalty for simply eating a piece of fruit, especially when it looks so delicious. Surely there's some misunderstanding here. Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. With that bite of fruit, sin entered the world. Conflict was established and Adam and Eve fell well short of God's expectation. Do you remember what happened next? God came walking through the garden And how do Adam and Eve respond? They hide. Here's the first point. Conflict is a broken relationship. There's a broken relationship between God and humanity, a broken relationship between man and woman, a broken relationship between all of humanity and creation. This relationship between God and humanity has been broken. Sin has entered the world, and we are no longer worthy to stand in the presence of a holy and perfect God. The relationship between man and woman is broken. If you have Genesis chapter 3 in front of you, you'll notice in verse 12 that Adam points at Eve and says, she made me do it. It's going to take a little bit more than flowers to get past that. The relationship between humanity and creation is broken. As soon as Adam passes that responsibility onto Eve, Eve passes that responsibility onto the serpent and says, the serpent made me do it. All of us are waiting, yearning, for these relationships to be healed. Which leads us to the second point. Conflict is a spiritual collision. Now by no means do I think that demons are hiding under every rock, so let me unpack exactly what I mean by that. Think about the last argument you had. Maybe it was with one of your coworkers, maybe it was with your spouse or another family member, maybe it was with a close friend. Your response was a spiritual collision. Did you lash out in anger, or were you able to keep a calm head? Did you hold bitterness and resentment towards the person, or did you give them grace and forgiveness? Did you create the problem, or were you the solution to the problem? Did you allow gossip to take place, or did you stop that gossip from happening? You were engaged in a spiritual collision. As followers of Jesus, we believe everybody is born with a sinful nature, born short of perfection. I don't need to teach my four-year-old and my three-year-old how to fight. 
They've figured that out completely on their own. I have to stop them from fighting regularly. When we believe in Jesus, God's spirit comes and lives within us. And our spiritual nature and sinful nature are living in conflict with one another so that we cannot do what we want. In Galatians chapter 5, we read these words. So I say, live by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit. And the spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. We are relational and spiritual people. And since we're broken in both these areas, it makes conflict completely inevitable. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says this in James chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and you covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. You may spend what you get on your pleasures. Do we want great social programs? Or do we want low taxes? Can't have both. Do you want to climb that corporate ladder and become a CEO of a company? Or do you want to just do a 35-hour work week? Probably can't have both. Do you want to cheer for the Edmonton Oilers or do you want to be happy? You probably can't have both. But yesterday was a big win. That was exciting. Men, have you ever seen this? Women as well. Have you ever seen this uh, post on Facebook? And it talks about the modern woman. The modern woman has a clean house. Can put a healthy dinner on the table on time. Is fit and trimmed and well-groomed. Works full time. The laundry is done and put away. And you have a great sex life. Choose two. That's all you get. Conflict is inevitable. Conflict is also necessary. How do you become better at anything? You become better through conflict. What does it take to become a better athlete? You have to push yourself past your previous limits. How do you become better at work? Is it by doing what you've always done before? No. It's by stretching yourself, adding more to your plate, or challenging yourself in different ways. New challenges increase your capacity. While we all want well-behaved children, what actually makes us better parents? Conflict. When our kids misbehave. There's a man in the Bible by the name of Job who is well-respected in the community, a spiritual leader, and has great integrity. His story starts off by Satan coming before God and saying, of course Job loves you. Look at him. He has nothing wrong in his life. His kids are beautiful and well-mannered. He has all sorts of wealth. Everything is going his way. I would like to test him and see if he truly loves you. In other words, I'd like to present him with conflict. Two thoughts. One, notice that Satan had to ask permission to cause the hardships. And God allows them to take place. Secondly, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 gives us these encouraging words. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Final point, a little bit tough to swallow. Conflict is an opportunity. There's a story in the Bible about a man named Joseph. As a teenager, he was a pretty arrogant young man. God had given him a dream that one day all of his uh, brothers would bow before him. 
probably something you should keep to yourself or ask a wise mentor how to talk to them about that. But not Joseph. He went up to his brothers and said, hey guys, good news. One day you're all going to bow before me. And for some reason they didn't respond well. So God gives him the dream a second time, and Joseph goes, well, they didn't respond well the first time. I'll have to tell them again. So he does. And this time, they don't respond well at all. They actually sell him into slavery. Through a series of events and a lot of growing up on Joseph's part, he eventually finds himself overseeing the distribution of food across all of Egypt. A famine struck the land, and you guessed it. His brothers come from where they are living and bow down before him and ask for food. When his brothers discover who it was standing before them, this was Joseph's response in Genesis chapter 50. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. But let's be honest. This is a whole new level of maturity. Who of us, when being yelled at, step back and go, you know, how is this a gospel opportunity? It's really not that easy. I love these verses in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. It's a biblical view of conflict. It gives us some theory. So let's spend the rest of our time talking about what that looks like in practice. We'll look at how to embrace conflict in just a few minutes. But I want to start with the pitfalls of conflict. Just a moment ago, I put up the attributes of a modern woman. Whether we're married or whether we're not, if your expectation of this is real, you are going to be sorely disappointed. Conflict begins when our reality doesn't meet our expectations. The moment our reality doesn't meet our expectations, we have two choices to make. Are we going to grow bitter and resentful? Or will we show the person grace and forgiveness? When our coworker doesn't meet our expectations and doesn't have their paperwork done on time, are we going to become bitter? Or will we forgive them? When one of your friends makes an incredibly hurtful comment, are you going to be bitter and resentful? Or will you forgive them? When someone makes a political comment on Facebook that you completely disagree with, will you be bitter? Or will you show them grace? When the church doesn't meet your expectations, do you walk away and say, I'm done with that place? Or do you recognize that just like yourself, the church is not perfect in desiring to serve Jesus? One of the pitfalls of conflict is this idea of uh, triangulation. I have a problem with that guy over there, but I'm not going to talk to him. I'm going to talk to my friend over here about that guy so he can understand how mad I am at that guy. This is an easy trap to fall into because misery loves company and it's a whole lot easier to talk about the issue than actually deal with the issue. One of my friends made an interesting observation about this idea of triangulation and he said, you've obviously come to me for one of two reasons. One, you have no idea how to talk to that individual and you need my help. Or two, you're a little bit intimidated by that individual and you're asking me to go with you. Now obviously that's not why the person came to him but he wants them to know these are the two ways that we can solve this issue. When speaking with his disciples, Jesus says to them in Matthew chapter 18, if your brother sins against you, go. Show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won him over. 
A second pitfall of conflict, one that many of you are probably familiar with, is the idea of fight or flight. A man by the name of Ken Sandy has written extensively on this idea of peacemaking and conflict resolution and developed what he calls the slippery slope of conflict. I don't know about you, but when I hear about this idea of fight or flight, two different thoughts come to my mind. The idea of fighting has two people yelling and arguing at each other in a boardroom. The idea of flight, someone saying, you know what, enough of this, I'm just going to get up and leave the room. When I was talking to a friend who's a gifted leader and he introduced me to this idea, he said, notice how bad it can become. That fight could begin with an assault, whether verbal or of the physical variety, move over to litigation, and eventually could possibly end in murder. On the other side of the spectrum, the escape response begins with denial then flight, and possibly even ends in suicide. It would be easy to write this off as an extremism. Dave, come on, be realistic. That doesn't actually happen. I'm not asking for a show of hands, but how many of us know someone who's committed suicide? The morning I wrote this past, uh, part of my sermon, I was reading in 2 Samuel chapter 17, and this is what I read. When Ahithophel saw that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey, set out for his house in his hometown. He put his house in order, and then he hung himself. So he died and was buried in his father's tomb. Perhaps one of the most surreal moments of my pastoral ministry happened a number of years ago when I was working at my office and I received a text and it said, hey, Pastor Dave, just wanted to thank you uh, for your ministry to me. It's been an absolute pleasure. I was like, oh, thanks. What a great text. And then I looked at it more carefully and I thought, I think he's going to commit suicide. And I had this moment where I thought, if I don't do something, this man's going to kill himself. And even if I'm completely wrong, it's an impromptu pastoral visit. And so I hop in my car and I rush to his farm and I, realize, and I run around looking for him and I can't find him anywhere. I go to his garage, everything is stuffed up. I break down the door and he is lying there completely unconscious. I had the opportunity to save his life. If you're running away from problems, please understand there is significant consequence. One of my favorite verses of scripture is John 8, 31 and 32, where Jesus says, know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And if you're here this morning, and suicide is on your mind, please talk to somebody. I'll be at the Connect booth. If you don't want to talk to me, there's some wonderful people sitting in these pews beside you. We want to help you. Perhaps murder doesn't sound so far-fetched anymore. Most of the New Testament is written by a man named Paul, but before he became a follower of Jesus, he persecuted those who did. Not just verbal threats or fear of imprisonment, he actually killed people, picking up in Acts 7, verse 59. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Paul was there, giving approval to his death. There is a better way than flight or fight. I don't know if you can see the middle of that slippery slope but there's three ideas on the left, three ideas on the right. In personal peacemaking, there are responses. We can overlook it when people sin against us. We can reconcile with that individual or we can negotiate with them. The three on the right are assisted peacemaking responses. We can ask someone to help for mediation, for arbitration, for accountability. 
by no means do I claim that the church is perfect. But when the church works well, there is a beautiful way of seeing how conflict can be resolved. The final pitfall of conflict is the response of others. How many of you have thought to yourself, you know what, I'd actually like to approach this person, but I'm afraid they're going to completely blow up when I talk to them. I know I felt that way. Maybe your family member refuses to talk to you. I have two friends that I went to youth group with who don't talk to their parents, not because of anything their parents have done, they just refuse to have anything to do with them. Won't pick up the phone, won't respond to text messages, won't allow their parents to see their grandchildren, no interaction whatsoever. Maybe you're afraid that if you get involved with somebody, they're just going to blow up and they're going to verbally abuse you or do something worse. Earlier I read from Matthew 18, that passage showed how to address a fault just between the two of you. The passage doesn't end there. It continues with verses 16 and 17. If he will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Last week we had a great launch with our two services, the traditional service in here and the renewed service in the West Court. And I was delighted to have Phil Calloway. He was funny. He made us all laugh. I heard Mel preached a great sermon here in the main auditorium. But it's not the jokes that I was left with. My biggest takeaway was a quote that Phil Calloway used by a man from Phil, uh, named Philip Yancey. And this is what he says in his quote. I rejected the church for a time because I found so little grace there. I returned because I found grace nowhere else. It's hard to have these conversations. If we're being really honest, it's hard to be on the receiving end as well. We want to defend our actions. We want to get out of uncomfortable situations. We need to learn to say, I'm sorry. Will you please forgive me? So we've talked about biblical conflict as a theory. We've talked about the pitfalls of conflict. Let's wrap up our time together by talking about how do we embrace conflict? Pastor Mel said to me, Dave, preaching a standalone sermon during the month of November, we're going to spend four weeks in the month of Jonah. And he said to me, Dave, pick whatever topic you want. And so I presented a few topics and I said, I'd really like to talk about conflict. And yeah, I talked about where I ended up getting the idea from, but I was starting to grow weary of all this conflict that was happening on Facebook. And so uh, this post really made me laugh. Here is a non-political post. For those of you who enjoy Christian satire, here's another thing that I found on Facebook. New study suggests arguing about politics is the most effective mode of evangelism. How are we to respond when something really bothers us on social media? While our practices may vary depending on background and culture, the principles we use should be the same. Let me give you another example. God gives us principles. He doesn't always give us practices. In Ephesians chapter 4, he talks about speaking the truth in love. Ephesians 4 verse 29, we read this. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it might benefit those who listen. Jumping down to verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Jumping over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. The Lord's servant must not quarrel 
Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant him repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. To put those into bullet points, of course I could do way more. It would look something like this. Speaking the truth in love means don't corrupt others. Build others up. Be kind to one another. Forgive one another. Don't fight and gently instruct. In the 1970s, Kenneth Thomas and Ralph Kilman identified five main styles of dealing with conflict that vary in their degrees of cooperativeness and assertiveness. These styles are not necessarily right or wrong, but help us to identify which response is needed at any given time. As a general rule, sure, collaborating is better than avoiding, but that's not the case in every situation. This coming Wednesday is Halloween. If you see someone walking down the street with a hockey mask wielding a machete, it would probably be good to avoid that situation. For the married couples in the room, when you work through the budget with your spouse, there's a lot of compromising that takes place. What do we spend our money on? What do we save? And then you agree with whatever your wife says. You'll notice accommodating in the lower right. It has a high value on relationship, a low value on assertiveness. Last week, my family and I went and had family pictures being taken. And I don't know when the last time is you've had family pictures, but I did everything in my power to make sure my three-year-old and four-year-old decided to smile at the camera. What do you want for supper? Pizza? Do you want to play video games all night? You want me to pay for all of your education? Just smile at the camera! And then you smile hoping that they don't cry instead. If you line up against me on the soccer pitch, you better be ready to compete. I don't care how good friends we are. I am going to do everything in my power to win that game inside the rules and maybe a little bit outside the rules, just so I can come out on top. But if you work in an environment where collaboration takes place, where men and women are brainstorming and coming up with ideas for a better product or increased customer satisfaction or streamlined efficiency or whatever your business entails. Even in collaborative meetings, there should be conflict. Some ideas are better than others. Even great ideas need to be honed and sharpened so that it's the best for your organization. Sometimes everything seems fine until someone comes up with an out-of-the-box idea that when looked at, people go, that is great. Embrace the conflict. Back to social media. Someone in the room might be thinking, yeah, but what do I say to that moron over there who is completely wrong in his ideas? What is your desired outcome for that conversation? Are they attacking Christianity? Are they posting pictures that could compromise their job? Do their political beliefs bother you? Do their comments bring shame to Jesus? Go and talk to them. You might say, but Dave, I have no idea what to say. And now we're at the crux of the matter. Shirley Harley divided, uh, in, developed something called the feedback formula. I've changed some of her language, but the idea is hers as well as the illustration I'm going to use, and I think this can be done all in under five minutes. Introduce the conversation. Then affirm the relationship. And then get to the crux of that matter. Describe their behavior, as well as the impact of their behavior. Ask their perception of the situation and make a suggestion or request, and then say thank you for your time. 
So while the illustration that she uses might be humorous, I think it also gives us an idea, a glimpse of looking into it, as well as something many of us have noticed. What do you do when a family member or a colleague has a distinct odor? Introduce the conversation. Hey, Dave, do you have five minutes? I just need to talk to you about something. Affirm the relationship. I know this is going to be difficult to hear. It's a little difficult for me to tell you, but I care about you, and I care about your working relationship. Describe the behavior. I've noticed you have an odor. And state the impact of that behavior. We work in close quarters. When people are talking behind your back, they don't actually want to work with you because you don't smell very good. Go back to step two. I know this is awkward. I know this might be hard to hear, but I, want, I don't want this to negatively impact you. That's their perception of the situation. Has anyone brought this up to you before? This probably isn't a new idea, whatever the conflict might be to the person you're talking to. Then make a suggestion or request. You know what, this might be a medical issue. You could go see your doctor about this. You could only wear your clothes once and then wash them each time. Maybe take a shower in the morning and not the night before. Dave, I know this has been hard. Thank you for a few minutes of your time. You might be listening to this or looking at that feedback formula and thinking to yourself, but Dave, doesn't that make people angry? Yes, it would. It's not an easy conversation. There are two people who I've asked to give feedback to this message. I am not looking forward to their feedback. These two men are spiritually mature. These two men love me. These two men want to see me grow and improve as a preacher. And I've asked for their feedback. It's difficult, but it's absolutely necessary. It's necessary for us to go and talk to people that we have conflict with, and it's necessary for us to hear and receive feedback ourselves. There's been a lot of notes. If you walk away with only a couple of ideas, here they are. Describe the behavior and its impact. Ask the people their perception. Make a suggestion or request. As I was writing this message, my dad's response to me is in my ears. Dave, don't come to me with problems. Come to me with solutions. I close with this. In the opening chapters of Scripture, we're introduced to a cosmic conflict. Adam and Eve had a perfect relationship with God and ruined it by one act of disobedience. But praise be to God, Jesus chose not to avoid that conflict. Over and over in the scriptures, we are told through stories, through poetry, through letters, that we have fallen short of God's expectation, and the penalty for that shortcoming is death. That's a real consequence. The only way to restore that relationship is by the good news of Jesus, that he is the truth, he is the way, and he is the life that he came in the midst of our conflict and he lived a perfect life, dying on a cross, that everybody might be restored to perfect relationship with him. That's a really good conflict resolution. David, I'm going to hand it over to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that the Bible doesn't avoid tough subjects. Most of us in this room probably don't enjoy conflict, but we know that it's absolutely necessary. 
We know that it helps us grow. We know that feedback makes us stronger. We also know that it's really hard. God, please forgive us for the times in which we have given back feedback and done it poorly. Please forgive us for when we have received feedback and responded with anger. Please forgive us when we have not embraced conflict because we've been afraid. God, fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we might do what is right and what is good moving forward. God, we are excited for what you are doing in our church and around the world. As we think about what's taking place right here in our congregation, we praise you and we thank you. As many of us in this room had the opportunity to go and hang out with a bunch of kids in grade five and grade six during the pumpkin party. We thank you that relationships are being made cross-generation, and I know no other place that does that better than the church. We thank you that men and women are coming to Alpha to learn, to understand, and to explore more about Jesus. We thank you for our global mission partners, both in Edmonton and around the world, that are telling people about Jesus. We thank you for Paul and Rose Chug, who are working right here in Edmonton at the Millwoods Friendship Center and interacting with new people to Canada, telling them about the good news of Jesus. We thank you for Valerie Selkeld, who's out in the foyer right now, telling people about Wycliffe and Bible translation and how that changes the world. And God, we ask that you would be involved in what's taking place both here at Ellerslie and all over North America and the world. That people would come to know you, love you, and serve you as their king. And that the church and the Jewish community in Pittsburgh after a terrible mass shooting yesterday would respond well. That love would win the day. And that you would be glorified. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to invite the ushers to come forward and collect this morning's tithes and offerings. Mel was funny the other day, and he said, Dave, you do so well at taking something from your sermon and making it applicable in the announcement time. And I'm thinking, so there's a congregational meeting coming up. If you want to practice conflict, come to that. How I could possibly go wrong? The chairman of the board is probably sitting here somewhere going, oh, Dave, do I have a conversation with you? There's a congregational meeting coming up uh, in a week's time. Please come by and see what's happening and hear the good news of what God is doing all across our church family. There's some great things happening here in the tradition service, great things happening renew and across our ministries. We'd love to share that with you. If you're excited about what's happening and you're thinking, I'd like to become a member of this church. We have a membership class that starts next Sunday, um, uh, November the 4th and November the 11th as well. You can connect with me, fill out a connecting card in the pew racks in front of you. Uh, And finally, we have something called Next. If you're new to Ellerslie and you want to learn more, If you want to be involved in what's taking place, maybe join a group, hear what we have to offer. There's next on November the 18th. You can fill out a connecting card or come see me at the Connect booth as well. Uh, The final announcement is from Tim Tui. So Tim, I'm going to invite you to come up. Many of you have uh, filled shoeboxes in the past and are familiar with Operation Christmas Child. And for those of you that have filled shoeboxes, I just want to extend a very warm and heartfelt thank you. Our family has participated in a couple of shoebox distributions, one in Haiti and one in Paraguay, South America. And we get to see firsthand uh, the impact of handing out shoeboxes. And it's not just the excitement of getting a shoebox, there's something far more. And I just want to talk a little bit about that. The mission, the stated mission of Operation Christmas Child is to share the good news of Jesus Christ 
using simple gift-filled shoeboxes as a platform to share the gospel. <clears throat> Last year, over 11 million shoeboxes were distributed and in over 100 countries around the world. And according to Samaritan's Purse statistics, um, well, there's one other thing. With the shoebox distributions, there's an opportunity for children to participate in a 12-week discipleship program called The Greatest Journey. For the statisticians in the, the group, uh, Samaritan's Purse has commented that um, uh, for every 100 children that receive a shoebox, 16 will report decisions for Christ uh, through The Greatest Journey. So you do the math on that, and that's about for every six shoeboxes that are filled, uh, one child <clears throat> will report a decision for Christ. And that's only the tip of the iceberg, considering decisions that would happen after the fact, or as the children share the message uh, with their family members or friends uh, for churches that start. So that's really only the tip of the ice or iceberg. So uh, I would encourage you to fill six, and chances are you'll see somebody in eternity there because of a shoebox that you filled. Um, uh, one of the things I think is so amazing about uh, shoebox is that each person can participate in fulfilling the Great Commission to go make disciples. And it's a wonderful opportunity to participate as a family and to engage your children and your grandchildren in just participating in missions. We all know that there are many closed countries around the world that would be closed to missionaries and to hearing the message of the gospel. But Samaritan's Purse has experienced uh, unanticipated opportunities to enter these closed countries because of natural disasters. But that's because of earthquakes or hurricanes or flooding. And so the, there's opportunities to go in with their disaster relief team, medical missions, and Operation Christmas Child. So anyways, it's just uh, such a wonderful time and a wonderful opportunity to participate. Um, so uh, just a reminder, there is a $10 suggested donation uh, to help us defray a small portion of the cost for shipping. If you've ever tried shipping a box like this, even to Calgary, you'll pay multiple times more than $10. And so to, to take a box like this around the world is much more. Collection week is November 12th to the 18th, so you have a few weeks to get your shoe boxes filled. And I would just uh, like to say, may you be greeted in by somebody in eternity who's there because of a shoebox that you filled out. Thanks. As Dave was uh, talking about conflict, in this day of commercialism that we live in, my mind